welcome to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're putting our sacred texts into conversation with the realities of these times, realities of racism and misogyny, homophobia and xenophobia, realities of domination, violence, and repression. In the midst of so much horror, how can our scriptures help us to show up, resist, and love each other through it all? It's important to say that this podcast is designed especially for white people, white people challenging and supporting other white people as we take action to end racism and white supremacy and do that by following the leadership of people of color. We welcome feedback from everyone and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. My name is Nicola Torbett, and I'm one of many lay leaders at First Congregational Church of Oakland. I'm also a member of Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, and this podcast is a project of SURGE Faith. It's been a couple of months since I've had an opportunity to do one of these podcasts, and it feels as if so much has happened since then. Draconian new policies at the border, reinforced in several states by the presence of the National Guard, justified by terrifying, dehumanizing language that echoes the genocides of the past, the separation of migrant children from their families as they enter this country, the chilling news about unaccompanied migrant children placed into the hands of human traffickers, the brutal murder of Palestinian protesters by the Israeli military, spurred by our own country's relocation of our Israeli embassy to Jerusalem, the appointment of a vitriolic homophobe to head the Center for Disease Control, head-spinning news about the U.S.-North Korea summit that was planned, canceled, and now maybe reinstated as of this recording, all in the midst of continued rollback of regulations that protect people and planet from corporate greed. It's completely overwhelming. And we need to remember that that is intentional. Our 45th president is playing by a familiar playbook, the objective of which is to pile on so many dramatic policy shifts that we can't keep up, don't know where to focus, exhaust ourselves, and spread ourselves too thin to be effective. Knowing that, it is essential that we do everything we can to sustain our focus. I don't know about you, but for me, that means slowing down as counterintuitive as that seems. It means praying and meditating more, spending more time out in the great green world, replenishing my spirit, nourishing my relationships, especially movement relationships, and then focusing like a laser beam on those specific places where I am being called to resist, based on the particular relationships that I have cultivated and the particular skills and capacities I bring. No one can do everything, but we must each do our piece and do it in relationship with others with as much integrity as we can muster. I have been sustained through these several months by something Adrienne Marie Brown said in her book Emergent Strategy, that while our tendency has been to organize a mile wide and an inch deep, we might do better to organize a mile deep even if it means we only extend an inch wide. Focus and go deep. For this week's podcast, I'll be focusing on the passage from 1 Samuel 8, where the Israelite people ask Samuel for a king. 
I want to focus here because this passage is an opportunity for us to do a deep dive into concepts of power. Power is something that I think progressive people, and maybe especially we progressive white people, are uncomfortable talking about. We associate power with domination, and we don't like it. We want to eschew it, to pretend we don't have it, to disavow the power we do have. But when we do that, when we do not use power consciously, we are likely to abuse it, even if we don't mean to. So the Hebrew scripture for this week is an opportunity, I think, to talk frankly with our folks about power, how we use it, abuse it, give it away, or harness it. Fruitful musings in a time of increasing repression. In a moment, I want to read the scripture so we know what we're talking about, but first, a little background. It's important to know that Israel up until this time, has had no single monarch or ruler, or at least not for any appreciable period of time, but instead has functioned as a self-governing confederacy of tribes, in which, as scripture says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This social organization, this confederacy of tribes, makes sense in light of theories that the ancient Israelites were not actually one single ethnic or familial group, but an amalgamation of anti-imperialist communities that emerged in resistance to early imperialist modes of governance among the Canaanites. Maybe this is old news to you, but it was an incredibly exciting proposition to me. You can learn more about this theory by checking out Norman Gottwald's big book, The Tribes of Yahweh. For now, suffice it to say that the Israelites of Samuel's time were living out their belief that they answered only to God, not to human authority. Periodically, in the midst of tribal life, a charismatic leader would emerge, often in times of military duress. These charismatic leaders were called judges and were often respected to call the shots and make decisions when unified action was needed. Samuel, our main character in today's passage, is one such judge. So with that background out of the way, let's actually hear the passage before we jump in. This is 1 Samuel 8, verses 4 through 20. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, You are old and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us then a king to govern us like other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to govern us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Just as they have done to me from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. Now then listen to their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel reported all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. 
and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plough his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, No, but we are determined to have a king over us, so that we also may be like other nations, and that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. So that's the passage, and I'm reading it, as I said, to be about power. Samuel's power, first of all, as a priest, a prophet, a judge, and a soon-to-be kingmaker, it is also about the power possessed by ordinary Israelites, some of which they are about to give to someone they will call king. It is also, of course, about God's power, which interweaves with human power in ways that are sometimes hard to parse out. So, let's jump in. Let's talk about power. Years ago, I worked for a nonprofit organization, doesn't matter which one, except to say that we had one of those hands-on founders, maybe you know the type, and people found him challenging, to say the least, to work with. I hear it's a common problem in small organizations. Anyway, I remember one afternoon, one of my coworkers came into my office, a really fine person and talented worker, but she was having a hard time with the boss and was, she and I both knew, on the verge of being fired, much to the dismay of the entire staff. I will never forget what she said to me that day, this person whom I considered my equal. She was quite angry with me, and she said, You know, you have a lot of power here, but you disavow it, and because you won't claim it, you abuse it. I was so confused by this at the time, and I was more than a little defensive. You see, I didn't feel powerful there. I felt frustrated, thwarted, and often at odds with the boss myself. It was only years later that I began to understand that power is not a feeling, but a systemic reality. It is entirely possible to feel powerless and nevertheless to have power. I had power in that organization because I was both the program director and the national organizer. I had in-depth knowledge of our programs and I had broad relationships with supporters and that made me invaluable to the boss, even if we didn't agree. He needed me to keep his organization running and that gave me systemic power. The concept of systemic power 
relies upon a notion that you and I have been given roles in a larger system within which we live and work. The power that we have within any given system depends upon the role we have been assigned, right? As a program director, my power was different than the power possessed by the executive director. It was also different from the power possessed by the data and operations technician, for example. We each had specific functions that we could carry out, and we had varying degrees of access to the resources of the organization. And together, those functions and that access determined our power within that system. I'll say it again, that kind of power is not a feeling, but a systemic reality. How many times have you heard white folks say that we don't feel privileged by whiteness? Often we don't feel powerful, but that doesn't mean we don't have power. We white folks can, for example, call the police on a black person and be relatively certain that the police are going to believe our version of the story. That's systemic power. It's access to the resources of the system. We don't have to feel powerful in order to have that power. And when we don't bring it to consciousness, we are likely to abuse it. This concept of systemic power is important to unpacking the scripture because the Israelites are requesting a king. They are essentially requesting a new role within the system of their society, a role that carries with it systemic power, power that comes, as we said, with certain functions and certain access to resources. This is what God is trying to warn the people about through Samuel. The king will take your sons and appoint him to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his court. He will take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. I am struck reading this about the inevitability in the expression. The king will do these things. The fact that the king will do these things is not reliant on whether the king is a good or bad person. These are simply the functions that come with being king, functions that are intimately connected to the purpose of the role. And so the people should think very carefully about whether this is a role they really want to create. Scripture tells us that the people wanted a king to go out before us and fight our battles for us. This is on the surface a completely reasonable desire. The tiny nation of Israel was surrounded on all sides by larger superpowers. So it's natural that they were thinking about safety and security. But I think there is a hint here that when we try to ensure our safety and security through any means other than radical reliance on God and a willingness to do our own part, we invite abuse that will ultimately harm us. It's interesting. The people want a king to go out before them in battle, but God warns that the king will not do that, but will instead conscript, conscript the people and their children to run out before the king's chariots. It is the people who will be killed, not the king, and he will act to preserve his own life and his own power. 
course, I can't help but think about my own and others' reliance on police officers to go out before us and fight our battles, and how inevitable it is that the people, and especially the people with the least systemic power, will pay the cost. There is an inevitability to the way power operates once it is granted. People in power will use the levers and the access available to them. So often we think the problem is a bad apple or a few bad apples, when really the problem is the system itself and the roles available within it, the things that the king will do. As movement strategist Maria Poblet puts it, each role within a system comes with certain levers that can only do certain things. There is no lever in our current ostensibly democratic structure that is, for example, designated to empower liberation movements. This is not to say that who occupies a role is not important. Certainly Israel had better and worse kings, just as we have had better or worse, say, presidents or police officers. But even the best individual placed into a role that comes with certain kinds of power is going to act in predictable ways with that power unless they become willing to defy their role and essentially break the system. And that is extremely costly. When Jesus flat out refused to be a king in the way the people wanted, he broke the system and it cost him. We know what it cost. We also know the liberation it opened up because there is another kind of power one that is not reliant on a role within a human-made system. And that is the power that comes from God and is the birthright of each of us. This kind of power comes in the form of agency, the ability to make something happen with your body, mind, or spirit. We are all gifted differently, but some of us have the power to lift and carry things, to manipulate objects, to move resources, to inspire people to bring creative projects to fruition, to break and crush things or people, to encourage or discourage those around us. These gifts or charisms in the Greek come from God. Samuel, for example, was gifted to lead. He was a charismatic leader. He possessed something, it seems, that made him trustworthy. I suspect this something is a strong connection to God. Obedience to God makes us trustworthy. There's this concept in the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous called Elder Statesman. Please forgive the gendered language. The book was written in the 1950s. Elder Statesmen are people in meetings whose opinions are respected and carry a lot of weight, not because they have systemic power. In fact, the 12 Traditions guard against that, but because they work a strong recovery program, and it shows. They have a strong reliance on their higher power and an ability to turn things over to that power, and it shows. These people are trusted leaders because their leadership reflects God working through them, and they are working, always imperfectly, to get themselves out of the way, <laughs> to bring consciousness to their own pride and ego, and then to let go of that so they can be available for God. 
There are also other spiritual communities that seek to live into this style of leadership. The Church of the Savior, for example, in Washington, D.C., has a membership covenant that involves an hour a day of spiritual practice. Now, people can be part of the community and come to worship without committing to that, but in order to be a decision maker, they have to be doing their spiritual work. In the transcript, I'll list some places where you can learn more about their model. There are also such people in our movements, right? Elder states people, if you will. And many of them are working to cultivate this leadership style throughout our movements. I think of Reverend William Barber right now. I think of Adrienne Marie Brown, whom I mentioned earlier, and her sister Autumn Brown. I think of Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Tometi, who coined the phrase high impact, low ego for the leadership style they were seeking to embody in the movement. This kind of power comes from God and seeks to serve God in the world. And this kind of power gives us the strength, the resilience, the willingness, and yes, the power to break the systems that are not working and that are killing and enslaving our people. With this kind of power, we can shatter the roles that, have been, that we have been recruited to occupy, roles like the chariot drivers and horsemen, the perfumers and bakers and cooks, the police officers and presidents, the mayors and planning commissioners, the docile white women and the all-knowing white men, all false roles meant to ensure that we play our part in the upholding of a system that benefits only a few at the expense of many. With that kind of power, the kind of power that comes from God and flows through us, we can reimagine a society that works for all. God, give us that power that comes from you. Amen. first step to dismantling current structures and reimagining new is to bring consciousness to the systemic power that we each have. For that reason, my first action step for you this week is to gather with some friends and map out the systemic power that you have in your work, your faith community, in other organizations in which you are active, and in our society as a whole. What levers do you control? For example, do you have hiring and firing power over anyone? Do you have influence with anyone who does? Can you move or direct resources in one direction or another? Do you control who gets access to the people who can? Do you control access to services? Many of us occupy positions that might be called gatekeeper roles. We are a first or second point of contact for clients, and we determine whose calls are put through, who gets appointments and when, even who gets through the front door. We are receptionists, phone operators, triage nurses, administrative assistants, security guards, middle managers. These are very powerful roles, 
What are the ways that you are indispensable to the organizations in which you operate? For example, some of us at First Congregational Church of Oakland are coming to consciousness around the ways that we do a lot of work for the community. And because people don't want to lose the work that we do, we have a lot of power to influence decisions. And of course, be sure to think about specific ways that your identities as white people, as cisgendered people, as men, and so on, grant you systemic power and influence. Then once you have mapped your power, you can begin to imagine how to use that power to make changes, to redirect resources in more just ways, mm -hmm. to open the doors to people who have been locked out, to bring in new voices by hiring people with important perspectives to share, by stepping back or passing the microphone to make space for someone else's words. Know that when you do this, things are likely to get rocky. There will likely be a cost. And if you step out on faith, God will sustain you and give you all the power you need. Second, I invite you to support organizations that are fostering low-ego, high-impact leadership, especially among formerly disenfranchised groups. Give them some money. Organize your friends, congregations, and social media networks to do the same. There are likely such organizations in your own community. Nationally, there are a couple of great organizations. One is National Domestic Workers Alliance. Another is the Cosecha movement, building power among undocumented immigrant leaders. I'll include links to those organizations in the transcript. Feel free to post other suggestions in the comments on this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. As always, the transcript this week will include a bunch of resources at the end to support your action. Let us know how it goes by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. And be sure to join us next week when Reverend Ann Dunlap brings us a liberation word for June 17th. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. And our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. Our sound editor this week is Maxwell Pearl. Thanks so much, Max. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett.